to the Fromers Podcast. I'm Pauline Fromer, your host. I'm so glad you're here. I hope you had a good Thanksgiving. I certainly did. This is going to be a slightly shorter podcast than usual, but it's going to be action-packed because helping me on the podcast is the always active. I don't know if that's a, a compliment, but his name is Jason Cochran, and a lot of you know him. He is the editor-in-chief of Fromers.com. Hey, Jason, welcome back. Thanks. I think it's a compliment because if you reverse it, it's not nice. The always inactive Jason Cochran. <laughs> Makes yeah. you sound like you're, you're dead, but yeah. anyway... Right. No, we don't, we don't want to go there. Meal and all that. I am half dead and I'm sitting <laughs> right. by the fire at my house, uh, you know, ready to chat. It's uh, it's a fireside chat podcast this week. That's hilarious. I can't imagine a house in Los Angeles with a fireplace going right now, but there you have it. So I got to ask the big question. Let's start with that. How are you feeling about traveling right now. Oh. Can you imagine yourself traveling yeah. in the coming weeks and months? I'm feeling so optimistic. I haven't felt optimistic since March. You know, it's, when you see light at the end of the tunnel, you know, that we can see these vaccines are coming online. We can sort of, you know, taste it coming. I'm finally starting to allow myself to think about travel, to dream of it, to plan it. Not making any bookings yet, but I'm now looking into the places I really want to go. I'm finally thinking, oh, it's time to start gearing up again. How, how are you feeling? I'm feeling good. It's going to be interesting uh, because some some parts of this will depend on who gets the vaccine first. Um, and I'm assuming I'm going to be at the end of the line for that because a month ago or so I had COVID. So I know I'm awash in good antibodies, uh, the t same type they I, I assume would be injecting me with. So it's going to be interesting to see how they deal with all of the information about different travelers. And to, to, to let me step back a moment. We've been running lots of articles on Fromers.com on just this topic because Qantas Airlines was the first to come out and say that very soon they are going to require proof of vaccination uh, to board their planes. And we also ran a piece about the fact that the UK and uh, there's a multinational organization called the International Air Transport Association that every airline in the world belongs to. It's a, a very powerful industry group. And they have been spending a lot of their resources on creating data systems which will be able to knit together very diverse data systems so that if somebody gets the vaccination, that lab's information then goes to the government, it goes to the airlines, and it all, in, it, it all gets wrapped up in what they're calling an immunity passport. It, it makes me a little nervous. I think there, this seems like something that there could be lots of mistakes it's because it's so technologically complex, but it's uh, it, it's going to be very interesting. That was a long, long winded response. Well, it has to be because we're all still figuring out what it's going to be. So it takes a lot of explaining, you know. Yeah. And I know a lot of people have been somewhat upset by the idea that we may be coming into an era where your health status is going to determine what you can and cannot do, because these immunity passports, they're looking at them not just for travel, 
But say you want to go to an arena to watch a sports event or say you want to go to the theater or you want to go somewhere else in public, you may have to flash your smartphone, which will have a QR code on it. And that will be your ticket for entry. And if you are not awash in the antibodies, you may be denied entry. It's going to be interesting. There's going to be people who are are not happy about it. I always like to look to history when I sort of assess these things and if they're unheralded or not. And I think of Typhoid Mary. Remember that that story of the woman who worked in a kitchen, I think, and gave all these people typhoid. They eventually put her in, I think, a sanitarium. They did because they kept telling her she shouldn't be cooking for people that she was passing along typhoid and she wouldn't believe it was true because she never got sick with it. So we can say this has never happened before. This is an unprecedented intrusion on our, you know, you know, it kind of isn't kind of what human beings have always done with. uh, I guess I don't know what there's a new term for lepers colony, but with the old lepers colonies. And this is kind of what what societies have always done with people who they thought might infect them. Um, and now they're just able to do it with technology. And you know, there's lots of questions about, is it fair? But it's certainly nothing new. Right. And you had an interesting piece up on Fromers.com about the yellow card. Talk about that. Yeah. You know, people were saying, oh, we've never had this before. Well, we have. We, I've used them myself. It's called a, a, a carte jaune. It's a yellow card. In the 1930s, the late 30s, uh, yellow fever vaccination was finally developed. And there's many, many countries in the world where yellow fever was, you know, one of if not the most dangerous killer. And by the late 50s, a lot of countries got together through, I think, the World Health Organization and came up with a card. And you, you know, if you get your vaccination, your doctor writes it on there, he stamps the certificate, and then you keep it in your passport when you cross a border, especially in Africa and Asia and South America. And it tells the border guard, this person has gotten the yellow fever vaccine. They're not bringing it into your country because they've been vaccinated. So we've been using these yellow cards these certificates for a very long time without comment. No one, no one's been screaming and yelling about them because they work to keep people healthy and safe. And they give you the freedom to travel without having to keep getting shots into every country you, you walk into just to make sure. So these yellow cards have been going on for a while. So that's another, another reason I like to point to history. We've been using these certificates that say people have been vaccinated for other diseases and um, it's worked just fine to satisfy border agents. So I think something similar, whether it's going to be on an app or probably a paper card for a lot of other you know countries that don't use a lot of apps, it's going to be a thing. And we've got to have to learn how to get our heads around it if we'd like to travel. Now, if you don't want to take the vaccine, you know, I guess you're going to stay home because this is the rule rule. This is what both the airlines and governments are going to want. You may not only have to stay home, you may not be able to go into shops, you may not be able to go into theaters, you may not be able to go into other public spaces. Who knows? I mean, that's your choice. You can choose that for yourself if you wish. I mean, um, but I'm going to do the vaccine once I'm sure that the the science has been uh, vetted you know, by some third parties. And I'm like, yeah, I don't see why I wouldn't want it because I'd like to get moving again and, and rejoin the world. Well, speaking of looking to history, I mean, that's what's so odd about this time, because uh, nobody who we know was alive during a pandemic. Mm -hmm. Uh, So everything we're going through just feels so new and so off-putting often. Um, And people who argue that AIDS, you know, in the late in the mm, late eighties, yes, but it was it was much uh, more easy to control. I think it wasn't something you could sneeze and and get. But there are, you know, it's illegal even to this day. For example, people who are HIV positive to give blood. So there are known exceptions. We already lived through this sort of thing. So it can be instructive, but nothing major like the, you know, the flu in the 19, uh, 18, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. But and it's changed so much the way we travel, the way we look at the world. I mean, a lot of people have left cities right now because they've been so nervous about about living in more crowded quarters. And I was listening to NPR and Fareed Zakaria was on. I love him. And he has a new book out uh, and it's about cities. And he was talking about the fact that During the late Middle Ages, the bubonic plague swept across Europe and the city that was hit the worst was Florence. Everybody fled Florence if they had the monetary means to do so. So the rich all left Florence. All of the pundits said Florence is dead. A hundred years later, Florence was the center of the Renaissance. Florence was the most celebrated city in all of Europe. So I do think cities will come back. And uh, Zakaria was also saying cities have to come back because we live in an era of climate change, too. Mm -hmm. And the way we live in cities is much more ecologically sustainable than living out in the countryside or even in suburbs because people get around on public transportation, which doesn't put as much carbon into the atmosphere. They can do more things in group settings, um, you know, which gives the other species room to exist. I mean, it's we have to have cities. So that's leading me to there was a fascinating survey by a an organization called Internations. And what it is, is it's a worldwide community for expats. So people who go and live in another country, that's what an expat is. They join this community and they're from all over the world. Uh, they have members from, I think, 170 different nations living in 200 nations. And they asked them all, what are the best places to be an outsider and live? And what are the worst? Where are the places you're really going to feel left out or it's where it's going to be very expensive? And I thought the resulting list was so damn fascinating. Starting with the worst places to live, they named a city in Kuwait. Had you ever heard of this city before, Jason? I hadn't. No, and it's certainly not one I probably put on my list to be an expat in, although there, I'm sure right. there's some contractors or you know people who work for engineers yeah. who work there. Yeah. So this, this obscure city in Kuwait was the worst place to live. That's not so surprising. But the second worst city, they said was Rome in Italy. I love Rome. I, I, I know the transportation system there is a total disaster. And yes, it's crowded. And yes, it can be a little crazy making. But the sights and the food and the lovely people. Uh, but the Were you surprised by that? No, I've heard of you know people who I know who've lived in Italy. And they, you know, the government's always changing and the bureaucracy can be so intense, you know, waiting in line all day to pay your electric bill. I think that's the side of it you don't see when you're a tourist. The day to day of how to live in a place is not I think they're very welcoming people. Right. I don't think that I would think so. But but it's hard to live in a place that's that bureaucratic. Yeah. Milan also made the top 10 worst places on the other side of the coin. All of these expats were saying that if you want to have a happy life, you need to go to the Iberian Peninsula. Five of the top 10 places were either in Spain or Portugal, Not which I thought was you. You thought that was surprising? No, not at all surprising. Mm-mm. That's well, a, to, you, me, that makes sense to me. 
It makes sense to me. Uh, it's interesting, though. It, uh, to me, it shows how much things have changed. I remember going traveling with my parents when I was a child and Spain, which had just emerged from Franco, was very depressing. I mean, that the, the economy was bad. The people had lived under this terrible dictatorship, which kind of sowed distrust. People were nervous about telling their neighbors what was really going on in their lives. It just was kind of a gloomy place. And we didn't even go to Portugal in those days when I was a kid because Salazar was still yeah. in power. That's a relatively he, recent change, really, when you come down to it within living memory. Yeah, absolutely. He was one of the worst dictators in the world. In fact, during his reign, the infant mortality rate, because poverty was so deep in Portugal, was on a par with the most impoverished African nations uh, during the reign of Salazar. And I, I met a man when I was in Portugal recently who told me that his father had said that when he was a young man, he always carried his name and address and telephone number in his pocket in case he was dragged off the street by the police unexpectedly. He would try and hand off that piece of paper to somebody so they could alert his family and let them know. And so I found part of the excitement of being in Portugal when I was there last fall was seeing how far it's come, how prosperous it is, it is now, uh, how progressive it is as a country. Um, Spain just input universal um, uh, income for its people to help them through this pandemic. Um, What's that like? What? <laughs> What's that like? I know. I know. So, so sometimes I think sometimes when you go through the darkest of days, what emerges is much more, is this a term human friendly, that, they, that they're, they're really putting together lifestyles on the Iberian Peninsula that are in contrast to what they survived and what they never want to go back to. And so I think they're more aware of human rights and human dignity and what it takes to, to lead a good life. And so the, the government and the people are more on the same page. Is that too idealistic? I don't think so at all. In fact, it ties back to what you said a minute ago. We know after the terrors of the plague, Florence thrived. And there's yeah. when bad things, you know, when, when we go through a terrible time, we realize the systems that we used to rely upon really didn't serve us as well as we thought they would. The Reformation happens or the Jazz Age in the 1920s happens. Uh, in fact, the only place I've ever lived as an expat was in South Africa in the years after apartheid ended. I, it was a wonderful time to be there because the country was full of optimism. It was still very inexpensive because it hadn't been embraced. It still isn't expensive. It hadn't been quite embraced by the world yet. And people were inventing what they wanted the country to be. I was there during the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that mm. talked about that wow. whole period of time. Um, and, and so there was, a, there was a generosity in the people because they were they were so happy to be able to prove what they could turn their country into. And I think it's a great moment to go to a place and live. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, Johannesburg in South Africa is on, on the top 10 worst places to be right now. But they've always been very different from Cape Town, right? Yeah, very different. It was a mining town. It was a, it, Johannesburg is always, you know, banking and mining. It's much it's it's landlocked. It's but it's, there's a lot of crime. There's a, there's a different feeling in uh, in Cape Town and some other the coastal cities that, than there is in, in Joburg, right. Pretoria. Yeah. 
So according to this new survey, Valencia is the best place in the world to live, which is so interesting because it's a it's a place that has grown in our coverage in the Fromer's Spain book just in the last decade because the government there invested a hell of a lot of money into this massive development. It it was a huge park filled with state-of-the-art museums. And that investment seems to have created a real renaissance for that city. Uh, And it's not just a great place to go, go for museums now. It's also a great place to live, which I think shows that when you invest in the arts, you make everybody's life better, I think. You know, people Um, are going to be looking more and more about, you know, maybe living somewhere else for a little while. Not permanently, not necessarily getting a passport there, but a lot of people or have lost their jobs or have completely had to reframe the way they approach their lives. And this is a moment for people to seize the dreams that they thought they'd have to put off. Right. Or working digitally and can do this. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So, you know, we're seeing a lot of more interest of people coming to us to get information about what's a good place where I could be for a little while. And uh, yeah, and it's it's something to talk about. It's a form of travel that's a lot deeper than a vacation, but it's still a form of travel. It's definitely a form of travel. In fact, we had another piece on, there was a Google search. There was a company that looked at Google searches for relocation and what was the most popular place in the world to relocate. Partially that depended on what country you were from. Like if you were from the United States, this really shocked me. Apparently the number one place people are looking to relocate from the USA, if you can take this study at face value, which looks at Google searches, is Japan. I would think with the profound language barrier that that would put off more Americans. But no, that seems incredibly popular. It's a dream destination, I think, for a lot of people. I know people who have dreamed. I'm, you know, I would have thought Canada would have been first on the list, but maybe that was maybe the late 60s. It would have been more on the list than now. Well, Canada, Canada was on the list for the rest of the world. Americans don't necessarily want to move to Canada, maybe because we know how damn cold it is. Uh, but the rest of the world does. Or at least they search for it on Google. At least they dream about it. Right. Yeah. Uh, so so those were. the. But when they fly, they're going to be dealing with some new fees. So this leads to the nitty gritty of what we've been covering. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm cynical, but I kind of chuckled and applauded when I heard that the government is no longer going to allow emotional what are they? What are they called? Emotional, emotional support an- animals. Emotional support animals to go on flights for free. Well, here's what it is. Yeah, they said yeah. they said they don't. The, the airlines can charge for them if they want to, and they said that they only really have to recognize dogs. You know, so the days of bringing your emotional support pony on board are sadly now behind us. <laughs> right. So that's going to be a fee some people are dealing with now. The other fee that's more worrisome is one that's now been instituted in England or in Europe, I should say, but it's a carrier where they've been very creative over the years, creating new fees and often what they do trickles down and comes to the U.S. Can you talk about that one? You you wrote that one from Farmers.com. Yeah, which is, uh, if you know Europe, it's it's a no-frills carrier, but it's still one of the most important airlines in Europe. And they're now, uh, they're having a very rough time of things, as all the airlines are. The way they're going to deal with the very low capacity that they've been dealing with is to start charging people to use the overhead bins. This is a first to be 
to, to put the flight crew in the position of checking your receipt <sighs> before you put something in the bin above you. Now, four years ago, when United Airlines launched basic economy, the terms of the ticket said you may not use the overhead bin. You have to use the space in front of you. But I've never been on a United flight where the crew was actually checking with, if you did happen to try to use the overhead bin, checking to see you paid for it. You know, people sneaking is up there all the time. But that's going to be the case for EasyJet. Now, you have to buy a higher fare class of ticket and they're going to check when you put your bag above. And if you haven't, you know, either can't use it or they I guess they charge you on the spot. Yeah, it's uh, those poor flight attendants. I would not want to. Oh, no, they're already, you know, you hear all stories in normal times about, you know, parties and fights breaking out on these because they're what you, you pay, you know, 10 pounds for the ticket. All the other stuff you want is an add on fee. And so people just get on board and they they go to Ibiza, they get drunk, they come back. It's, it's always crazy on these uh, these easy jet flights. They're, they have a different feel, I think. And Europeans, I think, also are more used to the idea of add ons. The American airlines almost seem to be leaning the other way right now, even though they're having a hard time financially. You know, some of them have cut their change fees entirely. Yeah. So it's inter- it'd be interesting to see if the Americans start to be more all inclusive, make it less stressful. You know what you're getting. Um, and the European airlines might be fragmenting even more and making making everything a nickel and dime process. So it's fun to watch this unfold. Maybe not so fun to pay the fee, but it's it's I can't see an American based airline uh, being applauded for charging for the bins the way EasyJet's doing. Well, I don't think they'd be applauded, but you remember at the very beginning of the pandemic, I think it was in April, United raised their luggage fee. JetBlue, yes, they did. Um, and um, it was, it was, they thought, I think they'd sneak that in. That it was yeah, national nobody was that no one's using at the moment. Yeah. But they, they did do that. But most of them have changed uh, so that they're not charging you for change fees. Part of me wonders if they're just doing it to be nice because they need us. Oh, please come back. Uh, and it'll all change again when, if things get going, you know? Yeah. Because when you need money, you need money. So who knows right. what's going to happen? Yeah, no, it's a crazy time in travel. And, it, it, you know, at the beginning of this pandemic, I don't think I could have ever foreseen the wide variety of things we've been able to cover on Fromers.com because of the pandemic. I would have thought in a time where very few people are traveling that few things would be happening in the travel industry. But in many ways, the lens with which we get to look through the look at the world on Fromers.com uh, is kind of a, a smaller way of looking at so many different trends that have come to the fore because of the pandemic. So that's a long way of me saying we hope you will subscribe to our newsletter, which is absolutely free. Just go to fromers.com, F-R-O-M-M-E-R-S.com. And on the front page of the site, down below the fold, which is you just scroll down a bit, you can see a, a way to subscribe. Is there anything I should have added to that, Jason? No, it's easy and it's free, but you already said that. I just repeated it. <laughs> All right. Well, we thank you so much for listening this week. Uh, we hope you'll come back again next week. And to those who are traveling, whether it's around the world or just across your living room, a hearty bon voyage. <laughs>